0: Right away, with the
1: invasion of Ukraine, so many things quickly changed. Relations with Russia, China, our allies, and other nations. Questions of national and global security. The outlook for the economy, inflation, food supplies, and energy.
2: And some of this really hits home. Anybody with a car noticed that the price of gas, which had been going up a lot even before the invasion, spiked even more. And it reminds us that... Economic and other forecasts are often subject to unpredictable events and changes. Today, we're gonna discuss one of them.
1: Climate change and the new outlook for global energy, Gernot Wagner. If there was one thing you could pick out right now that we're not doing that could help reduce climate change what is it
3: build homes in cities lots of them and for lots of reasons okay so the here's the co2 reason the average household in new york city emits a third possibly less co2 than the average household in the burbs
1: Our show is about fixes.
0: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix
4: it?
2: The war in Ukraine has led to a new kind of energy crisis. Unlike the 70s, we have enough supplies for now in the U.S., but there's no insulating consumers from the impact of energy insecurity around the world and rising prices of all those commodities. And it really hits people who are struggling to make ends meet.
1: And this energy crunch is coming when the case for action to reduce carbon emissions and fight climate change continues to grow more urgent.
2: Will the current crisis make it even harder for the world to make a move away from fossil fuels and make a transition to cleaner energy? We discussed with climate scientist, scholar and author Gernot Wagner... Gernot is a climate economist, a new academic category very much in need today. He's currently on leave from New York University and teaching at the Columbia University School of Business.
1: He also writes a column for Bloomberg News. Gernot joins us from New York. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Great to be here. Gernot, how do you see the impact of the war in Ukraine on energy and climate?
3: well it certainly provides the moral clarity right now that tells us to get off fossil fuels now um no not everything happening in response is a full step forward coal plants in germany are suddenly running more again than they would have otherwise because of high gas prices But, uh, yeah, we see the direction in which things need to go and need to go much faster, right? And especially in Europe, we see at the European Union level significant steps, policy steps in the right direction. Minus 80% Russian gas this year, within a year, get off Russian gas completely by 2027. And then overall, right, cut fossil fuel use overall faster than would have otherwise happened. But things are moving much, much faster now than, you know, most of us had thought only a couple of months ago.
2: Not all the steps, as you say, are are forward. Germany just announced that in addition to having closed three of their last six reactors right at the beginning of the year, instead of reconsidering closing their last three later this year, they just announced that they're gonna go ahead with that plan. Doesn't that slow them down in their mission to get off of fossil fuels for electricity?
3: It does, yes, of course. So across the border, right? France on the one end, right? Um, But also Belgium, which has had a plan to exit nuclear power is now keeping its reactors um, around for longer precisely because of right, the, the need, the desire to get off um, Russian gas right, immediately and um, get off fossil fuels um, faster than otherwise.
1: How does the US compare with Europe? Uh, there have been clearly a lot of changes, quite dramatic changes being announced um, in Europe. But I don't get the sense that there's been a real change in U.S. climate policy or in the outlook for for change here. Uh,
3: that's fair. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, there is always the Bill McKibben essay that says, right, and this is going to change everything. And frankly, it should. But yeah, you know, a lot more should happen vis-a-vis Ukraine. Um, The administration, Biden administration, did announce quite a few dramatic steps. Right. No imports no energy imports um that's that's a big step now okay much easier here in the us than
2: um than in europe um but still overall when we talk about the energy transition there's a lot of focus on coming up with new low carbon sources of energy but the international energy agency recently stressed that. It's also important to reduce demand. Well, you know, it's easy to do that by cutting off the supply and making the price go through the roof, but the impact of that falls heavily on the the poor and and working class. What else can we do to reduce demand for energy that doesn't just put poor people in the position of carrying most of the burden? I mean,
3: to be clear, right, yes, of course, those who right? Spend a higher fraction of their income on energy, um, feel much, much more so. And yes, that calls for policy. But of course, it calls for smart policy, right? So actually what we see right now, um, okay, Austria is, a, is, a, is a, a bad example of this a billion or so euros going toward lowering each you know, liter of gasoline, right? gallons of gasoline at the pump, kilowatt hour consumed and cubic meter, cubic foot of of natural gas. That's the wrong way to do this. You don't lower each additional uh, ton of CO2, the price of that. Um, What you do is you compensate those who are worst hurt by subsidizing each liter, each uh, gallon of gasoline. You're really wasting money, right? Because you're lowering
2: the incentive
3: to conserve energy.
2: The opposite approach is to tax carbon and then refund the money from that tax to consumers. And you know, this is something I, I know you've studied. What is the current state of arguments for, and policies to put a tax on carbon and set up a rebate program for citizens?
3: Would it be a good idea to do? Yes, right? Is it gonna happen tomorrow? No. Um, what we should be doing is exactly you know, let the prices go where they go. But compensate, refund, give people money who need it. Well, with the war in Europe, a fossil fueled war in Europe. yeah, we have these high energy prices. Now, wait a minute, Gernot, you've said something
1: kind of provocative. You just said uh, a fossil fuel
3: war in Europe. What yeah, do you of mean? course. Well, fossil fuel? What is it? Europe is sending the guy a billion bucks a, a, a day. That's how you're funding you, you, the war, right?
1: You're, you're talking about the amount of money that
3: Europe is sending for uh, Russian oil and gas. Yes. And coal. Exactly. <laughs> Russia is basically, you know... Gas station that's supplying one in 10 barrels, right? And a good fraction of uh, Europe's fossil gas, right? And yes, total Europe is sending some like 900 million euros, right? A billion dollars per day to Moscow right now, right? While the war is happening, we are funding both sides of this war, right? Turns out, right? (laughs)
2: So there's a paradox here that I want to dig into a little bit. Over the last 10 years, Europe, led by Germany in particular, has invested many billions of euros in renewable energy and in trying to get off fossil fuels. But during that time, their imports from Russia have actually gone up. And how is it that with all this investment in clean energy, they seem to have gone backwards on this particular metric?
3: So, yes, they have gone backwards on this particular metric. Now, part of this is getting off coal. Gas has often, has long been called sort of the transition fuel. Gas is contributing to carbon
1: emissions, but not at the rate that coal does.
3: Well, okay, if you burn it, right? Yes. If you burn it properly, it generates about half or so of the CO2 than burning coal. But turns out gas is 99.9% methane. Methane itself is a greenhouse gas, a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So all you need is like a percent or so of the stuff to leak. And gas is actually worse for the climate overall than burning coal know that transition right as much as you know many of us had, you know thought it was a good idea right get off coal switch to gas and then go all the way right to renewables um well turns out no and at the same time um it's certainly true that europe has taken other steps backward too right you mentioned german nuclear okay so you yeah. know Based on my accent, right? So I, you know, I grew up in, in that particular part of the world. Yeah, Austria voted two years before I was born, by the way. 1978, Austria had built a reactor and then voted in a referendum. 50.4% of Austrians voted to not turn it on. Guess what happened instead? They put up a coal plant. And yeah, that's a problem for CO2 emissions. Um because the alternative is carbon-free electricity, low-carbon electricity, um, generated in part by nuclear power.
1: What we've been talking about so far illustrates just how difficult it is to make this transition to renewables. Um, I want to include part of a podcast interview that I was involved in recently with one of the world's leading energy experts, Daniel Jurgen. This was for a show that I produced called uh, Let's Find Common Ground. And here's part of what we spoke about. The world is enormously dependent on energy production. Are the demands for power, especially electricity, likely to keep on rising in
4: the decades to come yes everything is likely to continue rising it will rise because population increases it will rise because incomes increase and it will rise because the world is getting more electrified and it isn't just electricity by any means it's also oil demand will probably rise for at least another decade or so natural gas demand for longer than that because energy is so tied into economic growth and development and rising populations And we have an $86 trillion world economy that rests on a very significant energy foundation, 80% of it hydrocarbon. And the notion that you just turn that over in eight or nine years is a very big challenge.
1: You just said that we still get 80% of our global supply of energy from hydrocarbons, things like oil and gas and coal. Yet there is now more talk about phasing out fossil fuels.
4: How long is this all going to take? I think that the only way we get to the targets in 2050 is two things. One is a significant carbon capture, because we're going to still be using a lot of oil and natural gas. And two, technologies, even the International Energy Agency has said half the Technologies that are needed aren't in operation yet, and technologies
1: don't come overnight. Daniel Jurgen on Let's Find Common Ground, a podcast produced for Common Ground Committee. So is Jurgen right, Gernot? Is it going to be very difficult to to
3: make this switch to renewables? It is, right? Now, it's a lot easier now than it was 10 years ago when solar PV was 10 times as expensive. So the International Energy Agency is right when it calls solar PV the cheapest form of electricity in history. In history. But does that mean we are suddenly shutting down all coal and gas plants and switching to... No, we are not. It takes even more than that. And frankly, the war in Ukraine provides yet another push... And it does provide that push. There is plenty now of you know new funding, new political will, so the moral clarity that comes with you know a war right now in Europe. Um, that is fossil fueled, where yes, there is now a renewed push to do more, none of that is going to happen by tomorrow.
1: This is How Do We Fix It, and we're speaking with
2: Gernot Wagner.
1: I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. As you know, we have a Patreon account. Listeners can go there. If you enjoy our podcast, give us a few dollars each month to help get our Solutions Journalism podcast more attention, more subscribers. Until now, we've been spending all of the money to increase our reach and gain more subscribers, but for the next six months... Everything we raise will go for Ukraine relief efforts to charities such as Doctors Without Borders and the International Red Cross. Help us help people who need our money the most. Sign up at patreon.com slash how do we fix it.
2: Richard, that's great. You hadn't actually told me about this plan. I really I really like it.
1: Now back to our interview with climate economist Gernot Wagner. And we're going to look at some climate change solutions. First, carbon capture and sequestration,
3: getting CO2 out of the atmosphere. I mean, frankly, the the principle is very simple, right? You literally, (laughs) you capture the CO2 in the smokestack. Uh, By now, we have the technology. We have the demonstration plants that literally suck CO2 out of thin air. Right, you know, that sounds expensive and it turns out it is. But of course, you've got to start somewhere. And yes, right, there is too much stuff, too much CO2 in the atmosphere already. We will need to suck that thing back out again at a massive scale. Um, But, you know, right now it costs a thousand or so bucks per ton of CO2 to get it back out. It's not going to scale uh, dramatically un- unless it's let's say two, 300 at most, hopefully 100 and below per ton of CO2. Um, but yes, that too needs to be part of the equation. Uh, okay, so where are we there? You know, right now we literally have, you know, Bill Gates invests in that company, Climeworks in this case, the Swiss startup that uh, has a demonstration plant up in Iceland.
1: It's a good idea, but it's really expensive at the moment. Now, we've seen technology and innovation make a huge difference in bringing down the price of especially solar panels and and solar energy. Are you hopeful, even confident, that the same
3: thing could happen with carbon capture? I am certainly hopeful and I'm fairly confident, right? It's not going to get more expensive. When Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House roof, right, 40 years ago, it was 100 times more expensive. So yeah, five years later, right, Reagan took them down. Okay, nobody is taking down solar panels right now, right? They are the cheapest form of electricity
2: in history. One of the things that's been concerning me, and in fact, I, I'm working on an article about it right now, is the way that sometimes the biggest obstacles to cutting carbon, or a key obstacle, comes from people who claim to be environmentalists. In the U.S., we've got Friends of the Earth and other groups fighting not only against against nuclear power in general, but to close down existing plants. Where we live on the Hudson River, uh, the River Keeper, Uh, environmental organization, which fought to close down the Indian Point nuclear plant, also just changed its position and now opposes the Champlain-Hudson power line that's supposed to bring hydropower down from Quebec to help replace some of the power that came from Indian Point. So how do we grapple with people who ought to be allies in this battle, but who you know, are fighting the power lines we need to distribute that solar power, that wind power. What do you say to these people? And you've spent your career as an environmental economist and advocate. What arguments do you make?
3: Uh, Okay, so there's a few things here, right? So first of all, you could keep going. Right, you know, it's the local chapter of the Sierra Club, which is against uh, dense housing, you know, building more uh, homes in lower Manhattan because they say it's bad for the climate. Like, no, it's not. NIMBYs, right, not in my backyard, right? Sadly, politically, are in fact often those who then who are basically supposed to be for progress, right? The progressives. Who then are often, you know, the worst nimbys? Don't build that solar farm, that wind turbine, that power line, that new apartment block um, in my neighborhood. Yes, that's it, right? Let's just you know keep uh, some perspective here, right? <laughs> so, um, so actually, okay, how, how about the the European example? Um, so, yeah, you of course blame the German Greens for basically shutting down nuclear, right? Because the one thing worse for them than CO2 in many ways is the meltdown, right? The potential for that, right? And yes, of course, right? Many still think that every nuclear plant is built just like the one in Chernobyl. But that said, you can actually tell the opposite story too. How the sped up nuclear exit in Germany... Precipitated by Fukushima in 2011, when that um, tsunami happened in Japan, um, actually helped speed up some of the energy transition efforts. So, um, of course, there's lots and lots of blame to go around.
1: Um, yeah, that's a very that's a very good point, Gernot. There's a lot of blame to go around for both sides. I mean, the the biggest opposition to a carbon tax or doing something dramatic on the part of the federal government about climate change comes from the right. It doesn't come from the left. Um, the opposition to disclosure by public companies of their carbon emissions, something which could really help in the fight against against climate change is opposed more by the right than the left. So there's, this is not something which is just blame the environmentalists.
3: So, yes, thank you. <laughs> and, and at the same time, right? Do I want to, frankly, do we need a new vision on the left that basically says we need to build, right? As opposed to this vision of we oppose stuff because, right, new projects mean more emissions. Clearly, we do need to build much, much more clean energy, that sort of infrastructure, of course. So, yeah, it takes investments in terms of dollars, and it takes investments right now in terms of CO2 emissions to build the kind of infrastructure that helps us to decarbonize.
1: Gernot, you believe that we should all do our part if possible, to fight climate change on an individual level, especially if we can afford to buy solar panels or an induction stove, as you have done. You don't own a car. You've chosen to live in New York City in a small apartment instead of a house in the suburbs. What sort of policies would help encourage us to reduce our personal carbon emissions?
3: Okay, frankly, ban gas in new buildings. Here's an easy one. Why in 2022 are we still building, you know, we're putting up homes with gas lines? We have the studies that show that your kids get asthma if you have a gas stove in your kitchen. There is a good reason why electrify everything is a, a you know, frankly, a, a, a real slogan here, right? An important one, um, because it is an important step in the right direction.
1: We've talked about a whole range of different potential solutions and also uh, difficulties. If there was one thing you could pick out right now that we're not doing that could help reduce climate change,
3: what is it? Build homes in cities. Lots of them. And for lots of reasons. Okay, so here's the CO2 reason. The average household in New York City emits a third, possibly less, CO2 than the average household in the burbs. Okay, so here's the immediate counter argument, right? Which is, oh, it's so expensive to live in. Yes, it is. Guess what? Guess why? It's also incredibly desirable to live there. Lots of people want to live there. If you sort of look at the statistics right, the last 20, 30 years, many, many, many more jobs in New York City than homes, which means, right, there's what, 20 million of us or so living around in and around New York, 8 million New Yorkers who live in New York and 12 million Bourbonites, and of course, you know, actually New York City, as, as, as bad as things are, right, and as much as we push, you know, young families into the suburbs around here, there are, of course, many, many worse offenders, right? I mean, okay, there's entire cities, you know, LA, Atlanta, that are basically one big suburb where you don't have a city. And then there's cities like San Francisco, right? Where you have, what, 600,000 people living in the actual city, and you have 20 million living in the Bay Area, right, in single-family homes outside, right, where, frankly, the city itself, if you sort of look at images, right, of San Francisco from the 1920s versus San Francisco right now, yeah, there's, you know, a bunch of skyscrapers that went up downtown, right, office towers, Um, but, frankly, most places where people live, right, still look the same now as they did 100 years ago. It's still the same three-story buildings, right? put a fourth or fifth story up there, right? Basically allow for that to happen. We, we know where people want to live. Let's build the homes. And yes, cities cut carbon. They already do. And of course, it's incumbent upon cities to do so even more. Kenneth Wagner,
1: thanks very much yeah. for joining us.
2: Oh, that's great. On How to thanks, Roger. Thanks, Jim. This was fun. Richard, you have a recommendation which is kind of in keeping with the European focus of our show today, but fortunately it doesn't deal with matters of war or energy policy. It's a little bit more of a diversion, I gather.
1: It is. It's a procedural called The Investigation, a six-part show uh, made in Denmark and Sweden. It's a remarkable drama based very closely on the real-life murder in 2017 of a young Swedish journalist, Kim Wall. And this show follows teams of investigators and divers who work day in and day out for six months to gather evidence and, and bring justice to Kim Wall's family. What was so striking to me right now is it in contrast to the way that Putin has smashed into Ukraine and killed so many thousands of people? Uh, here is what happens quietly and without fuss or comment every day in a democracy, which is the patient investigation into the loss of one life. And if you want to know how a real police procedural works, as opposed to, you know, something like NYPD Blue or or some other detective show, this is a remarkable show to watch. It unfolds slowly, but but beautifully is very well acted and told.
2: That's definitely sounds like something I'm going to check out. Jim,
1: I'm going to let you start.
2: As always, Gernot has a lot of interesting insights that challenge both sides in this kind of debate. And I loved what he said when you asked him, you know, what's the main thing we can do? It's build houses, build housing in the cities. In California, there's been such a strong anti-development attitude in the major cities that it's almost impossible to buy a house or even rent an apartment. And that drives people farther out into more vulnerable habitats. We've seen the impacts of those fires in recent years. A lot of people living out in those Sierra foothills are retired people who can't afford to live in LA or San Francisco or Oakland. So if we allow more development, get rid of our anti-development attitude and let people live in these denser areas, then all their other environmental impacts are better they're, they're they're using their cars less they're they're heating their homes uh, more efficiently and i really like what he said uh, related to that we need a new vision on the left we need to build stuff not just oppose stuff
1: Now, I know that you're exercised about what's wrong with the left, but there's at least as much blame to go around on the other side as well. And I think what really comes out of this is a need to say yes to action on fighting climate change, even if some of those policies turn out not to work as well as others. That's what happens in capitalism, for instance, with investments. Sometimes those investments made on a massive scale fail. But we, in the end, get innovation. And I think we need the same kind of attitude towards fighting climate change, and that means uh, reducing the power of those who say no.
2: I agree with you about saying yes. I'm encouraged. There are growing numbers of Republicans who are now supporting or looking into uh, the idea of some kind of a, a carbon tax and rebate plan. But I want to draw an important distinction. You say that, you know, if you roll into a big policy and it doesn't work, well, it's still worth it because we have to try something, and the same problem happens with capitalism. But in business, when somebody launches a policy that backfires and doesn't achieve the desired results, they either stop or they go out of business. In government, when a large policy is implemented and it doesn't work, it's impossible, almost impossible to roll back that policy. Look at the current program we have to mandate the use of ethanol in cars. Initially, this idea was it's a biofuel, it's renewable, it'll be better for the environment, you know, it'll be a new source of domestic energy. Well, it has turned out to be a huge disaster. About 40% of the corn we grow in this country today goes into the, your gas tank. And that means tons of runoff, fertilizer pollution, herbicide pollution.
1: But there are things the government. And the government alone can do, raising fuel efficiency standards, reducing leaks of methane by stricter enforcement. And then the example from the 1970s when the government took lead out of gasoline, all vital steps. And there are many more.
2: I'm fully in favor of a uh, policy of government regulations that limit the impact that v- various activities have on other people. You know, when you ha- put when you're putting pollution in the air, you're hurting other people. You should pay for that. What I'm against is putting huge parts of our energy policy and other parts of our economy in the hands of bureaucrats instead of creating the incentives to make it worthwhile for businesses to get creative about fixing the problem.
1: I disagree with a lot of what you've just said. Um, I think that the government does have a real role to play in this, but we'll continue this t- conversation, this debate, this discussion uh, in in the months and and possibly years to come. Years
2: to come. (laughs) Our (laughs) listeners, if you're still with us, you know that this is the kind of stuff we love to argue about.
1: How Do We Fix It is produced by Miranda Schaefer. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy.